When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did the Warriors take control of the finals? Does Klay Thompson's injury change everything? What are the key adjustments both teams are making? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on friend of the breakdown, Nate Duncan of the Dunked On Podcast. Nate, how's it going, my man? It's doing well, and you make me feel like I'm maybe not being enthusiastic enough in my intro myself. Maybe I need to step up my game a little bit. Uh, I, I would recommend it. Try it. See what happens. You never know. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. talking to you makes me all excited because we want to talk about game two. And I know that you have um, a very unique insight into a lot of the stuff that's going on, particularly in the play-by-play analysis. So I don't know. There's a lot of things to talk about. I'm going to make, like, I've already done, you know, two videos on this. i got another two to do. Where, where would you want to jump off? And, like, there's so many things to unpack here. What's, what jumps in your mind right away? Well, a lot of the attention was on Golden State's offense and DeMarcus Cousins playing well and giving them something, and then Nick Nurse going to the box and one for the, the last five minutes. But I, I felt that that really was burying the lead because Golden State's defense was so much better in game two. It was really a defensive victory. They had a lower offensive efficiency in game two than they had it in game one. I thought the offense looked better, but it, the numbers were the numbers. But I thought in particular Draymond Green looked so much better defensively. He didn't get chewed up one-on-one. By Siakam, they put him into some other matchups as well so he could help a little bit more. And him getting back to the level he's been at defensively in these playoffs I thought was the biggest key for Golden State's victory in Game 2. Okay. Now, did you feel, because I need to go back and study the shots they did get, actually throughout the whole game, the Raptors, but were you not concerned at all over the amount of open threes and makeable threes they did get that they just missed? You're talking about the Raptors? Yes. Uh, Yeah, to some extent I was. I, but I thought the biggest difference was the defense that Golden State played in the paint. They held him to a much lower percentage mm-hmm. shooting in the paint, you know, and it wasn't Pascal Siakam shooting 14 out of 17. And, yeah, he had yeah. some shots that were going to be unsustainable no matter what Golden State did with, you know, above-the-break threes and the crazy hook shots and a couple of mid-rangers off the dribble. You know, those weren't going to be there for him every time. But you know, I think he was only 5 of 14 around the basket. And so they just did a much better job of just being tougher, being in help position, defending with legal contact, but without fouling around the rim and making it more difficult for them. So, yeah, I think Toronto certainly, especially down the end, had some open threes that they could have made. And perhaps had they made those shots, then that loosens up the interior for Golden State. You know, I mean, in the game one, Gasol and Siakam, hit above the break threes pretty early. And then all of a sudden they find the going inside much easier. Those shots not going down as much. Those guys were combined 0 for 5 
from three in game two. And so now the paint is a little bit more packed and, and they have more trouble finishing around there. For sure, for sure. Well, I, you know, I had Cody Toppert on today in the video uh, to talk about the box in one. And it was kind of cool to hear, uh, you know, an NBA coach's perspective about that. Um, and what did you make of that? I mean, I, I was kind of saying it's a high school defense. I don't think they even played it much in college. I mean, I think usually in high school when you have one guy who's so much better than everybody else, that's what you have to do. What did you make of that? And, you know, we, we charted that. I think it was nine possessions. The only shot they hit was the three at the very end, and they had three turnovers. So what did you make of that? And, and do you think we, we might even see it more? I think it won't work when Clay Thompson is also in the game because he's just such a quick release, such a high release. If KD comes back, same thing. You just you can't just give him space on the perimeter the way they were for all of the, the non-stuff guys. Quinn Cook is a decent shooter, but he doesn't inspire the same terror that Clay, <laughs> right. Clay is going to. He can be closed down a little bit more easily. He doesn't have as quick or as high of a release. They had him out there. Uh, I do think that the effectiveness of it was a little bit overblown in the sense that they got some good looks that didn't go down. They got some penetration where they just had ugly turnovers that, you know, frankly should have plays that should have been completed uh, or it took a great defensive play to stop. And they are a great defensive team. Uh, And also when you consider that golden state had a 12 point lead with five minutes to go, Steve Kerr generally, tries to play it pretty conservative in those situations and run a lot of the time down. You'll see a lot of times when Golden State has a 15-point lead with five minutes left, they'll end up giving up a fair amount of that lead, probably not as much as they wanted to uh, or more than they wanted to in this game where Toronto was getting pretty close to being able to tie it. But you'll see them slow the pace down. They'll try not to give up threes. So a a lot of the circumstance, I think, might change the, the way that works. Obviously, also Golden State will be ready for it. Going forward, I think there's some very simple actions that you can run against that zone that can get you some pretty good looks in particular. Or you can obviously get any matchup that you want just by bringing the player you want over to that area of the zone. So I don't know that it's going to be some game changer. Maybe it's a look that they can go to when Steph Curry is out there at the end of the first and third quarters. But I think if... Clay Thompson doesn't play in the next game, they'll be pretty effective defensively no matter what they do unless they just are making too many mistakes. And that ultimately, to me, the elimination of Toronto's mistakes and miscommunications was the bigger thing that was accomplished by the zone than that, you know, Golden State just had no idea what to do against it. Yeah, I agree. I look like Golden State in their organic free-form offense still tried to – they had a nice uh, uh, pin down uh, with um, for Quinn Cook in the corner. He didn't shoot it, but, the, you know, Gasol did get out there okay. Uh, but they had some semblance of, okay, we're going to try and, you know, pin somebody down and get a corner shot. Uh, they, they did it once where Boogie went down to the low post because he could easily just pin Kawhi Leonard behind him, and they didn't, they didn't really do it, and that would have been another solution, I think, they, that would have been death for them. And then they also got a nice pass from Draymond down to uh, Boogie after he had screened and um, just didn't want to, you know, be ferocious and, and just kind of take it, take Marcus Hall down there. So, yeah, yeah, I would imagine Steve Kerr looked at that and said, you know, we got really great shots. Even that Quinn Cook uh, foul line jumper he took. Yeah, um, that's a fine shot at that point in the game. 
Yeah, you know, and it, and it just about went in. So, yeah, I have to imagine that they're not really worried. In fact, it's probably that same attitude they had after game one. It just didn't feel like they were that concerned, I think partly because, A, they knew that, you know, uh, Siakam was simply not going to shoot that way again. I, I think that was a big one, and that they were they were right there. Yeah, and I think also, you know, I do laud Nurse for going to that strategy, and I do think that zone may be underutilized. We saw the Miami Heat have a lot of, effect with their their zone this year during the regular season because part of the reason I think that zone has been underutilized in the NBA is well if you're a good man-to-man defensive team there's no reason to try to find another solution right your man-to-man defense works pretty well and you have good defenders already if you're a bad man-to-man defensive team that's probably because you have bad defenders so most of the times when teams have experimented with zone it's because they don't have good defenders to begin with. And so, hey, guess what? When you play zone with bad defenders, it looks bad. You know, so yeah. it's it's interesting for me to see a team like Miami, which has a, a lot of length, and Toronto experiment more with the zone with actual good defenders and see what you can accomplish there. Um, you know, I, I do believe with the defensive three seconds and some of the great shooters that we have in the league, you know, playing that over a sustained amount of time, Maybe that doesn't work, but, you know, we never know. And to actually do it with a real defensive team gives you a better window into whether it actually could be a viable strategy in the long term for certain teams. For sure. I mean, what we're missing here is like they should be playing uh, more like a 2-2-1 passive uh, full court press. You're not going to wear the the players out, but you make them take seven seconds off before they get across half court. That should help, uh, you know, and then certainly they should try zone. I think the real benefit oftentimes is the possession after you switch back to man. You do it for a few and then you go back to man. That tends to be a time where you might see a turnover or a really badly missed shot because the rhythm is completely disrupted and then they go back to man. So I think there's a value there. And also it's, it is kudos and let's loud, um, loud, 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 loud. Laud, Laud, Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse for that. And here's the thing. He's coached at a lot of different levels. And I do feel like there are certain coaches in the NBA that have only coached in the NBA. And when you have to coach with, you know, less talent and you have to get, you know, coach yourself out of a paper bag, that's where you're, you get really, you know, interesting ideas that could actually benefit you at this level. We just don't have enough of those coaches who are willing and have the, the guts to do it. So, again, uh, it was really great. And it was so effective anyway. And, you know, even though the shots were good for the most part for them. Um, that was, it was just kind of exciting to see. And, you know, it's the chess match, chess match that I don't feel like we've had. I mean, did we, I guess we had that with Kerr and Lou sort of, did, did we, I don't know if we ever felt it like this before. Have we? Yeah. You know, it, it's with the Cavs that it was always like, all right, are they going to switch or not ultimately? And then the, they would do it. And then uh, were they going to do a good job? I mean, yeah, we haven't seen a ton in these. Finals. I think you have to go back to the 2015 finals where David Blatt really wanted to slow the game down. He had the ultimate tool to do that with LeBron. They were playing with a ton of size. They'd play even Mozgov and Thompson together Mm -hmm. at times, really try to bludgeon them uh, on the offensive glass and do a lot of holding uh, off the ball uh, as well with guys uh, like Della Vidova. And and then Kerr going to the the death lineup as we called it at that time with Draymond Green at center and, and starting Iguodala instead of Bogut that was probably the last series where you felt like a strategic change really made a, a big difference and I think for Golden State they 
have, you know, they have a reputation as a switching team, but they've really changed up their looks a ton on guys like Harden, Lillard, and now Kawhi as well. I mean, where they do these things where, you know, they'll look like they're going to switch, and then the guy tries to back out to half court to go at the guy who switched on, and then they'll come double team again. You know, they they have a lot of different looks and a lot of smart defenders to where they've been able to change up their coverages and avoid miscommunications throughout these playoffs. And if you want to avoid the miscommunication of picking the wrong team during the finals, then pay attention to what Nate is saying. Watch my videos over on YouTube and think about how these two teams really match up. Once you've done that, you're ready to place some money down on who you think will win the finals. Head over to betonline.ag, the one place to get in on all the action, grab the odds, and allow the experts to do the heavy lifting for you. Sports, live betting, virtual casino, you name it. BetOnline.ag is B-Ball Breakdown's preferred sportsbook online. If you're feeling lucky and want to support the channel, go to clnsmedia.com slash bball and use promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. That's clnsmedia.com slash bball for a 50% sign-up bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. You know, here's what's interesting, uh, speaking of this chess match. So in game one, they really uh, got the ball out of Kawhi's hands with double teams. And even at the end, they just kind of ran at him when he was up on top trying to ISO. Uh, He didn't play very well, didn't score a lot of points, and the Raptors win. They pretty much flipped that. They were not blitzing him like we saw in game one, and then the Warriors win. Uh, I think that that's interesting to me. Is is, Is there a direct correlation between those things? I'm sorry, say that again. I just got distracted because the, the injury news on oh. Looney and, and Clay Thompson just came down. Oh, well, that was my uh, next question. So why don't yeah. you give us that news? Break some news for us. Yeah, well, so Kevon Looney is going to be out indefinitely. He suffered a fracture in his collarbone, so he ha- hard to imagine he'll be back. And then wow. Clay Thompson has a hamstring train. He's probably going to be questionable uh, for game three. That's what uh, the MRI showed for him. I, I got to say... Uh, for him, and I've been wrong on this before, but if you're at the point with your hamstring where you can't even run up and down the court, which is the point that he reached last night uh, after a few possessions after he suffered the initial issue, it's hard for me to imagine him getting out there in game three if you can't even run up and down the court two days earlier. Like well, those hamstrings take a while to heal. Well, wait, was did they describe the exact nature, like tear, pull, strain? What did they say? Uh, just, just strain. That's all they said. So I, I'm not. Uh, I mean, it, it, I don't, we weren't ever going to get like, you know, grade one, grade two. They, you know, they didn't yeah. give us that with, with Durant either. So I, I think it was just, uh, but, okay, cause yeah, cause but, but, but the fact that it shows up on the MRI, you know, I think is not a great sign. Yeah. I mean, Iguodala had something maybe not as severe uh, with the hamstring and they treated him for two days and he looked fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, I kind of secretly would maybe wish he doesn't play because maybe we'll get some more boxing one. Although I guess I think what happens here is if Clay is, is not going to play, then I think that sort of means that KD is going to probably really push to get back out there. Maybe I think maybe that'd be the case had they lost game two. I think ah. now they, they feel like and they have a lot of confidence that I think they only feel like they need to win one out of these two. And yeah, that, that might put them in a game seven on the road. But I think they feel if KD and Clay are back by that point, if they can just get to a game seven, even if it's on the road, that they feel better about their chances. And then if KD tries to come back and suffers a re-injury, then maybe they're totally sunk in the series. So I, I would say they may just 
try to hope that they can grind it out defensively and get more from Cousins and hope that home court can keep him in the game here, make it more of a defensive game and that he, he was still waiting for. I just don't think he's ready, frankly. I mean, given what the reports have been about his activity level, unless they're straight up lying to us about what he's doing. I mean, he hasn't participated in any team activities yet. And then you look to a, at his conditioning level. You know, if, if you're out there and you're not in condition, that's a recipe for re-injury as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they don't sound like they're the, the most forthright about the nature of the injury to begin with because they, it sounded like they tried to minimize it. And then, you know, he's been out longer than anybody would have thought based on what they'd said. And not, you know, it's impossible. I, we saw him walking around the back uh, during the game. And so, you know, it's not as, uh, I, you know, I still thought, you know, there might be something wrong with his Achilles. But the way he was moving in the hallway, he, it definitely is not his Achilles. I could tell that. That looks like it's just going to be the calf. So we'll see. But they've done some miracles with these guys. And, uh, you know, Clay is specifically has shown, I mean, he had a pretty bad knee uh, problem in maybe last year, and he played on it. Um, yeah, it was a high, high ankle sprain. Oh, well, uh, from, from, from last okay. year's finals. Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a high ankle. And he wasn't very effective after that, but you know, they didn't need him against Cleveland. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm not, I can't really imagine if they're down KD and clay. Um, I mean, if, if Curry can win that game for them, yeah. then that would, that would cement his status. Uh, even further. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and, and Looney as well. I mean, it's really, you know, they're, they've got, and then, and not only that, but the guys that they're, reduced to now McKinney and Jarebko and Cook. I mean, those are guys who have maybe one or two strengths and, you know, are just not really complete players at this level in the NBA finals compared to the guys that Toronto is going to be putting out there off of their bench. I agree. Well, you know, what are your thoughts about Sean Livingston and sort of the, excuse me, the, the corpse of Sean Livingston and should, should just McKinney get another big portion of those minutes and, and let him not play anymore as much? Well, I mean, the problem is Sean can't really play more than 18 or 20 minutes. You know, he's played, I think, over 10 minutes for like four or five games in a row, which is the, the first time they've done it. And Kerr has basically said, hey, you know, he can't play more than 20 minutes at this point in his career. And he's he, he had a, an article with Anthony Slater a couple of months ago where he opened up about some of the health issues he's dealing with with swelling in his knees. So I, I don't think they feel like they can play him more than 20 minutes. So it's going to be it's got to be McKinney and Cook and Jerebko. I mean, uh, after that, you're down to Jacob Evans. So, I, like, you got to play probably all three of those guys, frankly, if Clay is going to be out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually concerned a lot more with like Livingston's defense. I feel like there's moments there where he's out of position and can't recover, and his jump shot is just has always been not pleasant to watch. But he, he it was effective, and it just doesn't feel like he can make that anymore with the way he. I mean, his, his the, the violent head snap back, and he hangs in the air for so long. And I know it's mid range, but still. Um, so much airspace. So, well, let, let's get back to the uh, Kawhi Leonard question because uh, how I posed it before was the Warriors had you know blitzed him, did everything they could to get it out of his hands, and he did not uh, score very many points. He didn't shoot very much at all in Game One, but yet the Raptors won in Game Two. They didn't do that as much. He got his points a lot from the free throw line, and the Warriors win. So, is, do you think there's a correlation between uh, the, the way they were defending Kawhi and them winning the game? Oh, that that's tough to say. I think it, it Kawhi only taking the 14 shots in game one, I think, was just more about how effective everyone else was and that he didn't feel like he needed to do that. I do think that Toronto in particular, with the Warriors playing Cousins and Bogut a lot more, uh, Toronto, I think the first four possessions of the game, 
either through a DHO or pick and roll. They went with Kawhi at Cousins six times because there were a couple times with offensive rebounds or got knocked out of bounds or something. Mm-hmm. So they really made a concerted effort to go after him. And then Bogut in particular, I thought really it was a struggle for him. He was a, too slow in pick and roll defense, had some nice plays around the basket offensively. So I think because of the fact that they were with more conventional pick and roll defense, guys who weren't as mobile to get out there and do more trapping, that's maybe why they went to Kawhi a little bit more. And then when you consider how everyone else was struggling, I think he decides he needed to take over. You remember he took the 39 shots in that game seven against Philly when you know it seemed like some of the other guys were a little more reluctant there. So I'm not sure whether it's the chicken or the egg, whether it's Golden State saying, all right, we're going to let Kawhi shoot more or the other stuff's not working, so they're going to go to Kawhi more that's uh, causes that. I do think, though, that when you look at three assists and five turnovers, they did really limit uh, Kawhi's playmaking. And while he was able to be efficient, you know, he wasn't setting things up for other guys. They weren't taking advantage of any double teams that were occurring. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like, you know, at least after these two games, the notion of, you know, let Kawhi do his thing and shut everybody else down seems to be the recipe versus the other way around when they would just decide we're going to take this guy out. And it worked for them in the previous uh, uh, series, especially against like the Clippers and then against the uh, uh, the Blazers. So uh, but it, it kind of feels that way, I suppose. But again, there's also the regression to the mean with the yeah, was certainly with Siakam. We, we knew he wasn't going to do uh, his game one production like he did. But that brings us to, I think, Lowry, who just isn't playing very well. And he, his sixth foul was, could have almost been like, just get me out of here. because I'm Oh, that, well, it, I mean, the fact that he acted like he didn't commit a foul in that play when, like, he clubbed him across the shoulder two feet away from where the ball was. I mean, that was just, like, ridiculous for him to act like he was stunned there when that was, you know, one of the dumber fouls that we've seen for a guy to foul out on. I know. Yeah, 90 feet from the basket. It's like the thing you learn in, in you know, in grade school. Well, you know, speaking of that, what about the refereeing? A lot of people were really upset. I think uh, I couldn't even tell by the end if it really benefited. Who who was getting benefiting the most from the calls because it was it's so bad on both ends. I, I felt. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, we we do that live show, so I'm kind of reacting to the calls in real time. I generally focus less on the refereeing than a lot of people do. I didn't think that there were just so many awful calls and I did think that that it evened out relatively well I mean it was funny when you know people in the first quarter were saying oh man the Warriors are getting every call and you look down and there's six fouls on the Warriors and three uh, on yeah Toronto so I'm I'm not sure I mean and, and that technical that got called on Steph Curry I'm not sure whether that's like a point of emphasis or not but to call a technical on someone for kind of just tossing the ball in the air at, at that point in the game by by Scott Foster uh, was uh, I thought maybe inserting himself into the proceedings a little bit more than I would have preferred. So I I don't know I I struggle there. I do think that overall a low foul game favors the Warriors a, a little bit more because guys like Draymond Iguodala those guys like to go for strips. They're like to. Golden State will allow a fair amount of penetration and count on guys like Draymond to, to clean it up. Cousins is also kind of a handsy guy. He'll go for steals or blocks, but he's not you know, getting his chest in front of guys necessarily. So I think if the refs are allowing more contact as far as like a, yeah. on strips and plays like that, that that does benefit Golden State to some degree. Interesting. Okay. I mean, certainly 
Uh, and they don't really draw fouls that much themselves. I know they've gotten to the line a little bit, and Curry has done a good job of that. But they generally have not been a big foul-drawing team. So a lower foul game is better for them. It also lets them get their transition game going a little more. Fair enough. Yeah, I think what the worry tends to be is when they get Steph off ball like they used, like they like to do, uh, it lets them be really extra physical with him. They simply just don't call the, the fouls. And then through, as these series wear on, it's, it's like, you know, anecdotally in my mind over these last five years, they just give, they go more and more to him with the ball attacking. And then that's where he's protected because obviously they have to call, you know, cleaner or closer fouls when you're dribbling the ball. Yeah, no, I, I think that that makes sense. And, you know, especially if you're uh, – able to accentuate illegal contact that's happening <laughs> on the ball. You know, you can attempt a shot from like kind of a BS area when you wouldn't normally shoot it when you feel contact and draw attention to a foul, force the referee to make a decision as opposed to off the ball when, you know, they're just not going to be looking yeah. as closely. And, and Van Vlita has been a, a wonderful off-ball defender. So, yeah. uh, but, but I think, I mean, Steph has gotten more of his stuff, I think, off-ball, and that's part of why they went to – the box in one to, to try and take that away to some degree. Um, so I, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, how much can Steph handle? I mean, obviously Draymond is very capable of doing that as well. I think one thing that I might consider doing if I were golden state is having Steph be work more as a screener on the ball. Yeah. Uh, and now when you don't have KD, that's a little harder to do, but you know, I think Draymond is capable of at least getting into the lane and making a decision off of those type of actions uh, as well, because they're not, that, that's one of the things they haven't done. I'm sure this has killed you as a coach, how many buckets they've given off on Steph, Steph Curry back screens in this yeah. series. Yeah, no, that that was a stretch that at 18 0 stretch. I think there were, there were all layups on, on back cuts and beautiful passing by uh, DeMar, uh, DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, yeah, it was really, um, I mean, that's the next uh, video I'm going to do tomorrow is for focusing on that run, which actually started like in the second quarter, I think, when Steph heated up initially at the end of the second quarter and then kind of carried over into that 18 0 run. Um, so, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the, uh, the overall series here and what your view is. I, I kind of felt like they, they'd split the first four games and then game five decides, you know, the whole thing. Um, and then I feel like maybe, the, you know, the Warriors win that and they win in six in Oakland. What do you think? Yeah, my pick before the series was Warriors and seven. This Thompson injury is extremely concerning for them, uh, yeah. to be sure. Um, you know, that makes me want to go back towards the Raptors. We don't know how long KD is going to be able to play. We don't know when he's going to come back. We don't know how effective he's going to be. You know, if you tell me that Clay Thompson isn't going to be able to return in this series, you know, then I think you'd have to favor uh, Toronto. But, uh, you know, the series will often see it shift when you get to uh, the first game three, the first series for, or the first game for the road team. And so I, we'll see. Maybe Golden State just has figured them out and they win the next two and the series is looking over, but I, I still am leaning towards warriors and seven, just if they can get healthy enough and get KD back, I think they have the advantage. And to me, if Toronto wants to win the series, you know, usually you say if the road team wants to win the series, they got to be up three, one to me with KD's return, Toronto needs to win these next two games to be considered the favorites. Otherwise I, I think I like golden state, even if it is two, two, 
after four with Toronto having the home court advantage. Yeah, I, I could follow all that. I think that, you know, the thing that's really yeah. sticking in my side is, is Lowry's play. They, they need him to play better. Uh, and I, you know, I think even yeah. Gasol needs to play. I mean, there's, there's enough players in the Raptors yeah. who aren't really playing, even to their normal selves, that you, it gives yeah. me some pause. Well, well, we've, I, I mean, we in one of the two games they did, I mean, really the only guy who played poorly in game one for them was Lowry. I, I do agree with you on Gasol, though. I think he is such a bellwether Mm-hmm. As far as you know, if he can score, hit, you know, just two threes in a game, that opens up so much. In addition to just giving him the, that extra six points or so, feeling like you need to guard him out there, especially if he's going to be guarded by Cousins out, making him get out in the perimeter. Uh, I think that's he to me is the biggest guy I look at of our. Are things going well for Toronto offensively or not? Yeah, I mean, just just look at the basket, man. That's, that's all I want. <laughs> he catches the ball, the high post. It drives me nuts sometimes. Um, well, listen, Nate, this is an awesome breakdown of game two. Certainly as detailed as we're going to get. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on. we got to do this a little bit more often. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. Uh, good to hear from you again. And uh, looking forward to catching up uh, in Vegas this year. Oh, definitely. I'll see you there. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Nate? Apparently, I just went on the show. <laughs> <laughs>